Welcome to Luxury News Weekly, your number one source for luxury news. I'm your host, Simba Wakatama. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Solaru. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1. Yes, Luxury News Weekly has survived a whole season, and we're going to take you into this winter, if you're on our side of the world, uh, or summer, depends where you are, global audience, with more luxury news. Today, we have an exciting episode filled with a lot of business news. So if you want to see the inner workings of luxury, the behind the scenes of how these luxury houses actually operate, even at the executive level, we're going to discuss that today. So let's get started with our first story of the day. So Versace has appointed a new interim CEO. Yeah, Elizabeth, do you mind breaking this down for us? Well, um, I used to be a headhunter. So appointments and departures and that sort of thing holds a lot of interest for me. I find this really interesting that they brought in an interim CEO and this person is going to be running the company till December 31st, 2022. Now that's a sign in itself. Uh, Mr. Wilmot, his name is Wilmot, he will be working closely with Donatella Versace, who's the chief creative officer, and he brings with him many years of luxury retail experience, including a 13-year tenure with Michael Kors as president of the EMEA region. So prior to working for Michael Kors, Mr. Wilmot also worked with Marc Jacobs in Paris and Donna Karen in New York, London and Milan. I'm paying particular attention to the words of the chairman and chief executive officer of Capri Holdings that own Versace. So he said, I am thrilled to have Cedric in this role. He has a, an exceptional breadth of luxury retail. He did an outstanding job in Michael Kors. And I am confident that under his leadership, Versace will continue to execute on its growth strategy and build upon the brand's incredible momentum. So, reading between the lines, Versace needs to make money. <laughs> that is the long and short of it. They need to make money. They have brought um, Mr. Wilmot in because he has retail experience, so he knows how to, how to make money. So, he needs to deal with possibly, and this is speculation, he might need to deal with some difficult um, people within the organization. He needs to say to them, yes, it's all well and good having all these amazing visions and whatever, whatever, but we need to make money. So for me, that's what I'm reading with this appointment. Also, there's going to be a search process in place. So they'll either contact a company to do the search or they might do it themselves. The problem is there aren't that many people that can be appointed to this particular role that have experience of working with, shall I say, rather temperamental creatives and legacy, cre and legacy creatives, as well as, you know, see them through this rather difficult patch. So that's my take on it for now. What do you think, Simba? Well, I think he was not the first choice. You know who the first choice was? 
the CEO that was there to begin with. But he was poached by Burberry. Because if you remember, back in 2021, Burberry lost their CEO, right? Their CEO got poached and went to work for another Italian company. And so they said, who are we going to hire? And then they poached Versace's CEO, kind of pushed the problem forward, <laughs> you know? So uh, I think this is all really just uh, a vote of confidence saying, hey, you know what? We're still going to do what we're supposed to do, even though we lost our CEO during this very trying time. And uh, yeah, everyone just get in line. Put your heads down and make money, like you said. So, yeah, I think that's it. I think uh, they've done a great job recovering from the loss, and, uh, the sudden, you know, loss of a, of a great leader in their company. And uh, I wish them all the best. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I think it just confirms again and again and again that positions like this can only be held by a very small talent pool of people. That's the reality. So if you appoint someone outside of that talent pool, it's a, it's a bit of a risk because you need someone who has knowledge of the industry and consumers' wants and changing needs and also being able to deal with human issues, cultural issues, um, temperamental artistic types. So it goes on and also satisfied sh uh, shareholders because ultimately it's about increasing shareholder value it's about making money and keeping afloat so yeah as you said good luck to them yes and we'll definitely talk about that uh in in the last story where we talk about chanel's chanel's new uh ceo i think these themes of uh you know who can be appointed are going to come up again but for now let's take another a, a nice look here at a very juicy story and Although uh, this story might not seem um, to be very scandalous at the highest level, let's get into it. Now, we're talking about Sotheby's auction of the world record-breaking art collection. This is an art collection that uh, raised $600 million from one art sale, okay? And this is from the McClough Art Collection. So the McClough family... Uh, is a family of uh, basically real estate moguls. They developed a lot of real estate, uh, a lot of buildings in uh, Manhattan and around the world. So it's a billionaire family. And now, due to a messy divorce, they are forced to sell their art collection. And this $600 million art collection was only a small piece. There's more to be sold. So... Uh, first off the bat, uh, let's talk about the actual art and then I'll tell you the story behind the divorce. So Elizabeth, do you mind uh, just giving us a, a summary of what kind of art is included in this collection? What makes it so special? Well, this again has all the makings of a Netflix drama series, Messy Divorce, They've Been Married for Years, Guy runs over the younger woman or allegedly or whatever it is. And boom, they have to split everything down the middle. So the artists um, that are for sale include Andy Warhol, Jeff Koons, Agnes Martin, Gerard Richter, Philip Guston, and of course, Frida Kahlo. 
Now, Frida is one of my fav most favorite artists in the world. I even did a shoot that was dedicated to her. And oh my goodness, I love, 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 love the fact that one of her pieces was sold for around $34.9 million. And it's record-breaking because prior to Frida's art being sold for that incredible amount, the highest that had been paid for art by a Mexican artist was around eight to nine million. And that was a record set by her ex-husband. So even in death, I am so glad to see Frida winning still. And the irony is that this particular piece of art is actually entitled uh, Frida and Diego or me and Diego, um, roughly, that's the translation. And it shows uh, Frida um, with um, a little um, uh, a painting of, Die of Diego bang in the middle of her forehead um, symbolizing that, you know, he lives in her subconscious, despite him being a low down, dirty, whatever he is. So anyway, um, I just absolutely love that twist to the tale. Yes, it is funny how the record breaking artwork is all about infidelity. And, you know, the love between uh, two very famous people, because that's exactly what's going on in this situation <laughs> right <laughs> talk about life imitating art <laughs> oh yeah so the mcclose were married for 57 years whoa 57 they were married longer than most people live i know <laughs> now i believe the wife Linda. Linda, yes. The wife, Linda, she was the one who was really into art. And so she sourced most of the art pieces. But because of the divorce being so messy and the size, you see, art is very hard to, to, to put a value on. So in a divorce situation, the best thing to do is to sell it and see how much you can make and then split that, right? Because you can't really um, put a fixed value on the artworks. So this divorce was messy. It was public. There was a lot of quarreling. I think at one point, Harry McClough and his, uh, his mistress were put on a billboard, on a billboard in the middle of New York. Okay? Oh, so, oh, yeah. That's tacky, tacky, tacky. Ooh. Ooh, that's not good. Yes. So they publicly um fought each other okay probably one of the messiest billion dollar divorces there have been although i did hear of one divorce uh between a uh, billionaire and his i don't even know maybe third wife where she they were on an island and she put every single lawyer on that island on retainer so he had to represent himself in divorce court and of course he lost a lot <laughs> wow that's hilarious wow. but that's a different story this is uh this is public in in new york so yeah i mean look 
the art world is thrilled about this, obviously, because some of these pieces have never been seen before. Some of these pieces are so rare, people didn't know who owned them. And now it's all up for grabs for the first time ever. And uh, yeah, it's sad to say, but the McClose are not going to be as illustrious art collectors as they used to be. Um, but yeah, that's the gist. Yeah, and you know, from our understanding, there are 35, 35 masterpieces um, that were brought in. Um, and you know, th th because it, those 35 masterpieces were estimated to, Sotheby's thought, you know, they could bring in 400 million, and yet they brought in 676 million. So it's quite possible that the whole collection will exceed well over a billion, and that would break the former record that was set by David Rockefeller, whose art sold for 835 million in 2018 at a Christie's auction. So yeah, let's watch this space. We are interrupting this episode to tell you a little bit about the people behind Luxury News Weekly. I'm your host, Simba Wakatama, the founder and CEO of Volo Bespoke. We personalize jewelry storage for the jewelry you wear. Find me on Instagram or LinkedIn at Simba Wakatama. I'm Elizabeth Solaru, founder and CEO of Luxury Business Emporium and Elizabeth's Cake Emporium. You can find me on LinkedIn as Elizabeth Solaru or on Instagram as Luxury Business Emporium. Yes, indeed. Now for other corporate drama, because it never stops. All right, so now we've got Richmond Group. For those who don't know Richmond Group, um, we have spoken about them before. You will know, you might remember their names coming up when we were talking about how a uh, group of investors were buying into Richmond because they weren't exactly happy with the way Richmond was operating, right? So now uh, we have the group actually looking at dropping Yuke's uh, Nede Porter in favor of Farfetch. And before, we joked and laughed about that, but it was, it was true. It was true. They were thinking of doing it. And, you know, it's just hilarious because I remember, and I'm quoting myself, I was like, it sounds like they're going to just leave, uh, you know, Ned A. Porter uh, for, for Farfetch, and yet Farfetch is the main competition and the reason they're underperforming in the first place. Right? I, so I know, right? <laughs> because I, I actually said maybe they might be looking to merge both platforms, and I don't know if we spoke about um, what that would mean in terms of antitrust and competitions uh, commission and stuff like that. I mean, these are things I don't have a particular massively understanding about. But for them to dump one for another, I mean, that is shady behavior. Who does that? Oh, you don't know the half of it. Let me tell you about how this first merger, this Ukes Net A Porter happened. And then you'll understand why these investors are coming in trying to take control from the current Richmond um, uh, management. Okay, so Ukes and Net A Porter were started at around the same time with the same business model. 
Okay, they were bringing um, retail online, and they were their main. They were each uh, competitors. Okay, so what they would do is they would say, well, if someone was, if if say Ux is better at uh, uh, front end, then Net A Portal would focus on back end, and if you is if if Net A Portal was better with customer uh, engagement, they would just do the opposite. So they would complement. They ended up complementing each other because they were competing against each other and Richmond thought well this will be a great merger so Richmond first um, invested in net a portal back when it was a uh, much a much younger company so at the time the founder Natalie uh, Massanet she worked closely with Richmond group and I think back in 2014, they had attempted to kind of merge Ukes with um, Nete Porter, but Natalie uh, was able to fight that, and then it didn't go through. So one day, Natalie is getting ready to go into a meeting with the executives of Richmond Group. It's supposed to be a very short meeting where they just introduce, you know, what the current affairs are. I think Natalie was going to um, raise money for her company, so they were just doing a quick update. And she gets into the meeting, and the Richmond, um, the Richmond, um, I think the CEO, uh, and you know, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the CEO was like, "Oh, um, by the way, uh, we are merging you with Ukes, and there's <gasps> nothing you can do about it." <laughs> oh, oh, talk about the rug being dragged from under your feet! Whoa, yep. hostile takeover style. We're Whoa. taking over Nete Porter. We're merging you with Ukes. And, and the master plan of it was that they said, oh, you know, you, you and uh, the founder of Ukes, who is uh, uh, Federico uh, Marchetti, you're going to kind of like, kind of co-CEO, kind of, you know? Uh, but that's not what happened. See, Federico already was in with Richmond Group, right? I, I can imagine. Yeah. So so what they did is as soon as he came in, in a public interview, he was, uh, you know, speaking about, oh, the merger um, and everything. And then he said, but at the end of the day, there is one boss and it's me. This was not public information. <laughs> you know? Wow. So he... He got appointed as the CEO, all right, of Uxnede Porta, and Natalie left. She left. She couldn't really fight. She couldn't really stay in there anymore. And Natalie's style was, see, you know, of running the company was a lot more relaxed, a lot more listening, a lot. And you know, uh, Frederico was just my law is the law. Okay, it's just crazy. And then on top of all that. They then had some kind of weird deal and then took Uxnet A. Porter public. And Federico had a nice little nest egg in there. So it's, it seemed like that was the point the whole time. It was like beef up the company and take it public and take a giant chunk out of it, right? Of course, this is shady behavior. And that's why there's a fight for the control of Richmond Group because while they're doing this shady behavior, they're underperforming at the same time. So instead of fixing the problem, what do they do now? Well, drop that and buy Farfetch, right? And right th what they want to do 
is make Uxnete Porter a neutral company that's not owned by any one large group, being LVMH, Caring, and Richmond, right? Because Uxnete Porter, between the two of them, have so much control of the back end of almost every major luxury company because they, they do the back end. They have a lot of technology in almost every major luxury company. So they had a lot of leverage. And uh, yeah, so it seems like the reason they merged them was probably to strong arm the other large companies. But now it's clearly not working. They're performing poorly. They're going to have to drop it, make it a neutral neutral platform, um, and then invest in Farfetch. So that's the long, drawn-out story. But, you know, to be continued. Here's the problem, though. They have... Ugh, why don't people... People never learn. They have a history of, you know, taking over these platforms and then performing badly. They will do the same thing to Farfetch. It's like a man who keeps marrying and divorcing all these women, you know, gets, a, gets <laughs> yeah. you know, gets younger Fifth women. Times the charm. <laughs> exactly. I mean, who knows? But yes, good luck to them, though. Uh, we definitely will be keeping an eye on this story. So much drama. Again, worthy of a Netflix series. I mean, who would have thought? Yeah. Who would have thought that so, you know, so much shenanigans going in. Um, oh, terrible, terrible, terrible. Ooh. It's like House of Gucci without the killing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, so dear. so what's happening with Bottega Veneta? That's that's our next story. What's happening with Bottega Veneta here? Well, well, well. That is the drama as well. Again, it's like, what's going on with these companies? Now... What happened was, you know, to begin the story, although it doesn't, every story doesn't actually, when, when, there was, when there's an announcement that somebody has left, that's not the beginning of the story. That's just, you know, some, something must have happened over whatever. So what happened was, in November, Caring announced that Daniel Lee will be exiting Bottega Veneta and a new creative organization of the fashion house will be revealed very soon. So that was a press release. Lee joined Bottega Vezetta as its creative director in 2018. And he actually presented his latest collection for the brand in Detroit. So again, let's look at their statements because this is where the gold is. So, you know, Lee said, well, I'm grateful to have worked for the exceptional talented team. I'm, I thank you. Thank you for blah, 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 blah and for the opportunity. So the usual standard stuff, right? And then, um, again, they put out their statement saying, you know, we thank you. Over the last three years, there's been re remarkable growth of the brand, blah, 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 blah. I'm grateful to Daniel for bringing his passion and energy to Bottega Veneta, his singular vision, blah, blah, blah. So we, you get all that. Reading between the, the, between the lines, this is what I'm getting. I'm getting, yes, we brought in Daniel to help us attract the Gen Zs and the millennials, which he did because we are now known to people like Rihanna. He's also made us a lot of money. We're very grateful. However, he probably wasn't the nicest person to work with because when they use, yeah. th when they use things like passion and energy, passion is code for temperamental so-and-so. Energy is something like bull in a china shop. So... <laughs> So you need to read between the lines. However, this is what makes the story very interesting because as soon as his departure was announced, 
it, then they quickly announced that they found somebody. And I'm like, what? Within a matter of days, maybe less than a week, they actually appointed um, Matthew Blazy. And I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, Matthew Blazy was appointed as the new creative director. Now, he's an internal hire. Um, and this is what even um, was a bit surprising. He wasn't even an interim, right? He was literally appointed into the role full time. And wow. he, yeah, just like that. Now, Blazy is worked mostly behind the scenes, right? But he's actually amassed a following for his work at brands like Raf Simons, Maison Martin Magiella, and Celine. He's a Paris-born designer. Um, you know, he's uh, worked, he was part of Lee's team on Bottega, Veneta, because he was the ready-to-wear design director. And it's a role that he's only had for about a year or so. Again, let's read the statements. This is where you get the gold. Uh, Matthew Blazy is an extraordinary, talented individual whom I am proud and excited to entrust with the creative helm of our industry. So that's bog standard. However, they say he's very talented. He will do the work. He will cause minimum fuss and he will not, and he will keep his mouth shut. And because he's newly appointed, he will not misbehave. That's what I'm reading um, in that particular statement. They definitely, and there's some, there's another part of the statement. Um, Matthew's appointment will further enhance the modern relevance of our brand and accelerate our growth while preserving the values that are at the core of Bottega Veneta. So they're saying, yes, Matthew is young, he's talented, but he will stick to our traditional values. He will not be like the other one who upset everyone and left. <laughs> so that's what I'm guessing. <laughs> yep, that's what <laughs> I heard. <laughs> <laughs> so, so again, yep. um, again, you know, again, these appointments, you know, appointments, departures, these revolving doors are like a mini soap opera. It's just a question of reading between the lines and knowing that for them to accept, um, Dan, you know, Daniel Lee's departure, despite the money and despite the relevance he was bringing to the brand, some serious things were going down. And word on the street is that he was, you know, he was probably not the easiest person to work with. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And it sounds like the reason they appointed him instead of making him an interim uh, director is because they gave him golden handcuffs. They're like, we will appoint you, but here you go. Put these handcuffs on. All right. They're, you see, they're nice. They're shiny. They're blinged out. That's his paycheck. That's his, you know, his nest egg, everything. Right. But they're still handcuffs. You don't behave outside of the parameters we give you. You are only as creative as we allow you to be. You only operate within the realms that the CEO deems fit. Stop taking risks, just grow the company in a sustainable manner and be easy to deal with because we got rid of that guy and we liked him. We don't even know who you are yet. <laughs> oh my God, that is so true. That is honestly, 
it, you you know you're absolutely spot on with that you know with the golden handcuffs and and for him as well is an opportunity for him to make his name yes yeah. because they initially start off uh, with creative directors they start off by having a small but very devoted cult like following but they still need to mainstream they still need to be on first term you know first term basis with you know your typical celebrities they need that they need to attract that star power they need to have a much higher devoted following so right now this gives him the platform to do that and Bottega um again um people have done amazing things with you know that because they do these traditional weave um handbags and the joke on the street is that um uh this is something i saw on twitter by the way and i i could be i could be misquoting but somebody um an influencer got burgled and they took all of her handbags except the bottega venetas were left behind so that's the inside joke in the fashion <laughs> industry <laughs> you know a very expensive joke having said that bottega are in a position to raise 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 awareness you know of their brand make you know make themselves be seen as totally totally cool um especially in light of Daniel Lee's departure again we will be keeping an eye on this story because i have a feeling we've not heard the last of it yes now we've been talking a lot about these appointments directors ceos let's keep this same kind of energy for this story which is probably the biggest story for this episode and to be completely honest I have not yet formed um an exact opinion so maybe maybe let's talk through this and by the end of it I'll have um you know my mind set. So here we have Chanel appointing a new global CEO, okay? Lena Nair. Now she is not from the fashion world. She's from HR uh as along with some other positions. She's actually got quite a robust um history in multiple fields and multiple industries. I think she was actually an engineer at one point um and then worked uh in brand management and you know all the way up to uh Unilever where she was the um kind of the head of HR, right? Uh, essentially. Um and yeah, and now she's been appointed uh, CEO and the first female CEO of a global luxury brand. Um so yeah, first let's 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 cover the basics here. What's your what's your initial take when you see this? Well, this has got to be one of the most interesting appointments in my opinion and for a number of reasons. So, let's get the obvious ones out of the way. Number 1, she's a woman of color, um under a certain age to be appointed to this particular role. So, well done her. Um I give her props for that. Number 2, Let's look at her background. Um she's mostly mostly from what I understand worked in HR. Now traditionally not many HR directors transition into CEO roles because a lot of CEOs tend to be from backgrounds like either accounting, uh, finance, um investment banking or um some are even techies, you know, that transition into CEO roles etc etc. So that tends to be traditional ceo background so to have an hr person because hr is a funny funny um discipline because it's not hr 
a lot of people don't really rate, and I, oh God, I'm being controversial here. They don't really rate HR people having yeah, said- Yeah, it's true. Having, but it's so vital. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. But having said that, it's the person who makes HR relevant, if that, you know, if that makes sense. So a really good person in HR role can be pretty powerful because she's trying to either, uh, uh, she's, she's saving the company tons of money by solving problems before they arise. And what do I mean by that? Many executives behave badly. They behave so badly. A good HR person can spot the typical difficult behaviors of executive team and look at the impact it possibly might have on staff and correct that. Now, this is where this lady's appointment gets interesting because she's actually done a lot of work on culture, organizational culture, which I find very interesting. Unilever, yes, is not a luxury brand, but they have a portfolio of thousands and thousands, I should imagine, or even hundreds of products. And each product line um, has to be marketed to different um, segments of the population, different countries. So this lady, Lena, she's got that global perspective. So for that alone, if I were, um, again, if I, you know, as, as a headhunter, if I put my headhunting hat on, that global perspective she brings to Chanel is absolutely crucial. And that's because sometimes a lot of luxury brands, they're navel gazing. They're thinking, oh, aren't we amazing? Oh, aren't we wonderful? And I know that we've actually um, spoken a bit about Chanel before because it's a brand I absolutely love. It's my favorite luxury brand, but I will not hesitate to call them out um, because recently, a number of people have been complaining about the products not being up to par. So things like the handbags having wonky seams, being machine stitched, the hardware falling off. It's things like that that um, don't get to the top as quickly as it should. But somebody like Lena, from my understanding, she is very on the ball. She's a people person. She will be scanning the, the airways. She'll be scanning the internet because issues like that can have a damaging and lasting impact on a brand. So for me, that's how I look at her appointment. So I'm looking at her background. I'm looking at what she's done. And I'm also looking at what she can possibly bring to Chanel if they let her. Because they said something, again, when you read the statements, they said something around um, um, changing consumer awareness of the industry's environmental impact, importance of diversity hires. They want to try and shoehorn her into just diversity, but she's a lot more than that, from my understanding, because she has to be pretty impressive for Chanel to hire her. And for Chanel to look outside of the industry, there is something about this woman that they need. So that's my initial take. Yeah. And, you know, you gave a very well-rounded take, I must say. Um, so let me give a hot take instead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't buy it. 
I don't buy it, and I don't necessarily think this was a good uh, decision. Something's not adding up, and they're hiding it under the guise of diversity. Now, of course, I'm a big proponent of diversity, but never at the expense of the brands that I actually love, right? Pick the most qualified first, and there's a lot of diverse people that are qualified. This is a bit out of the way, you know? And you know what? You know what rubs me the wrong way, I think? It's not, it's not necessarily even her background. It's the approach. Unilever is a mass market brand. Chanel is becoming a mass market brand. And that's why the quality is dropping. Exactly. Because it's becoming a mass market brand. Now they're getting a mass market person to lead a luxury brand in the mass market that is used to kind of being around mass market brands and hiring from mass market brands. What do you think is going to happen? She's probably going to appoint people that have more history and maybe a diverse group of people nonetheless, which is a good thing, but has a history in managing mass market brands and outsiders who don't exactly agree with the luxury sentiment. Like one of the things she did mention um, it, along the lines of uh, she, she always felt that uh, you know luxury should be inclusive and that's what she's going to try to do more of. And she says, I believe every voice matters. Now, although I think everyone can kind of agree this sounds like a good thing, but in the world of luxury, there's no such thing as inclusivity. Okay, the whole point is about exclusivity, right? And uh, I don't know how it's going to play out because I, I don't know. Something's off here. I'm trying to put my finger on it. And like you said, they keep saying we hired her um, to kind of lead us in a more diverse, you know, uh, path of, and hiring. They keep mentioning hiring. They're having probably issues with that. Um, but... What I'm not seeing here is the core values of Chanel being represented through this this decision. Not, uh, and also, what's the plan? Carl Lagerfeld passed away in 2019. There's a big chasm here creatively and operationally because his creative vision ran the, co the company at the corporate level. Um, so I don't know. Chanel has been making a lot of mistakes. A lot. Yeah. And this might be one of the biggest ones they've made. And only time will tell. Yeah. That's my take. I remember that it's really the smallest thing. So, for example, the advent calendar debacle that they, I mean, that was all over TikTok and all over the place because the, 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 the value just wasn't there. It wasn't the money that people don't mind spending the money. But again, it was the value. So they're consistently having issues with quality. I think you've brought up some valid points, but I'm going to say this. Again, another controversial take. The founder of Chanel founded Chanel based on the fact that she hated frou-frou stuff that other luxury houses were doing. So she created simpler lines from mass market material at the time, which was the boucle, the, the wool, um, the jersey, the boucle wool which is kind of a down market fabric. So again, you could also argue that appointing Lena, they are literally going back to their roots, <laughs> you know? So 
Yeah, but she was also a Nazi spy. So there's a lot of, I know, exactly. a lot of, things, a lot of things we don't want to repeat. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, 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 my, so my point is Chanel is not this, um, you know, it, uh, people think that Chanel, yes, it's an amazing luxury brand. but It's not always been without its controversy. And I love this particular controversy because it's a human interest. And in a couple of years, we don't know if Lena would have worked or not. But at least we're, we're here now, you know, but but I think you've mentioned a, 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 an excellent point. The creative director piece is missing, is absolutely missing because, you know, Karl Lagerfeld, that was the best years of Chanel in recent times, in my opinion. And, 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 yes. and, yeah, and I'm hanging my hat on that. Now, I reckon if they find someone, uh, another Karl, if you will, yeah. Um, then she will shine. Yes. And if they don't, this is my prediction, if they find the creative component um, that is just world-class excellent, she will shine. If they don't, she will, she'll be done in three years. Guaranteed. Because I don't see how that will translate um, from her experience in mass market in consumer in big the the big the for for everyone big and for everyone let's call it i don't see how that'll trickle into the issues of luxury that we have with chanel they're not issues that i can't get chanel it's issues that every time i get chanel it sucks right so yeah if they have the creative part figured out i think she will not only excel I think she will bring a new era to the luxury world. Oh, absolutely. Let's, um, we'll keep an eye on a couple of things. We'll keep an eye on the share price. We'll keep an eye on departures. And we will keep an eye on the quality of the products. Let's see if they go up or down. Um, but as you said, it's just been going downhill. And if I were her, even little things like the advent calendar debacle, that was very bad for the brand, extremely bad. Um, yes, it's nice for luxury to be a bit more inclusive, but inclusivity also brings scrutiny because the more people you include, the more they will scrutinize your products and the more they would say, actually, the mystery is gone. So, yep. Yeah. In luxury, you can't make everything for everybody, um, you know. So definitely don't forget uh, the people that built the brands, the loyal consumers who've been buying Chanel for 50 plus years, they also have a say. Um, but she seems like a very good listener. So <laughs> HR, right? <laughs> yeah. We so, love you, yeah. Lena. <laughs> we do. In fact, I'd love to hear Lena's take directly from her. Um, but still, you know, we can love the brand. We can love the company. We can love the people and still scrutinize it because Luxury News Weekly gives you the honest to God truth. Okay, these are our opinions as they go. I will do a shout out right now. We would actually put it to the universe. Um, you never know if Chanel, if Lena or anybody from Chanel wants to comment or anything like that. We would love to hear your take and your plans. Amazing. Now, if you are listening to this podcast on Apple in particular, on Apple Podcasts, please give us a nice five-star rating, you know, so we can keep bringing these amazing stories. This has been Luxury News Weekly. Check us out on social media. And as always, we will see you every single week.